Hello, and welcome to Intelligence and Society. This is a series of lessons that focus on how cases of espionage and subversion are reflected in American popular culture. Your host is Dr. Mark Selinsky, author and 40-year veteran of the United States intelligence community. Intelligence and Society is a product of Kensington Security Consulting, a firm that brings education to national security. The material in these lessons does not express the official position of any agency in the United States government. And now, today's lesson. The Killing Floor Mass Murder in San Bernardino The location in the slaughterhouse where the stock is killed and then butchered. The definition of the killing floor. Out of the Blue It was the annual working party and nobody thought anybody would get hurt. As in previous years, San Bernardino's health inspectors would discuss plans for the upcoming year, hand out awards to high achievers, and enjoy a buffet and potluck luncheon. Some inspectors wanted to avoid attending. Bored, one attendee chuckled to a co-worker that the large clock on the wall must be broken because time was moving so slowly. However, the more ambitious and new hires saw the party as an opportunity to shine before colleagues and supervisors. Less visible was a pocket of simmering tension in the venue. One inspector later commented that 28-year-old Syed Rizwan Farouk, an environmental health specialist, seemed fidgety and snarled at a perceived slight by a co-worker. Then, according to one party-goer, Farouk bolted the building out of the blue. He returned with his wife, Tafshin Malik, before lunch, and both were dressed in black and were carrying weapons. The pair entered the party hall and began shooting Farouk's co-workers. Before the two exited the building, they shot 36 attendees, killing 14. First responders arrived in less than four minutes, and the San Bernardino Police Department's Special Weapons and Tactics Unit came six minutes later. Police chased cornered the assailants, and then, after taking fire, riddled them with bullets. References to the Bonnie and Clyde shooting sprang up on the social media immediately. This is the story of what happened. You can see just how badly it was damaged during the shootout. So authorities want to learn everything they can about these shooters. Soon after the massacre, police raided a home in nearby Redlands that is connected to the married couple. And David Begno is near that house with reaction from the suspect's family. David, good morning. It's place in the world. The story of San Bernardino is tied to the history of the American West. California became part of Mexico, and pioneer trailblazers such as Kit Carson and Jedediah Strong often guided settlers to their new homes. It was incorporated as a city in 1854 with a population of 1,200. At the time, San Bernardino was strictly a temperance town that forbade drinking and gambling, holding fast to Mormon values. 
As the town grew in the late 19th century, so did its need for hard-bitten men. This brought the Earp Brothers of Tombstone fame to the town. The town began to prosper with mission-style architecture, towers, domes, and a tile roof the new train station became the architectural pride of the city. Lake Arrowhead, an easy drive from Los Angeles, attracted the Southern California smart set in the 1930s. The film industry used San Bernardino to test movies. After World War II, band leader Bobby Troop acclaimed the city in his hit song Route 66. Troop remembered, quote, I came down through the Cajon Pass and saw San Bernardino, this beautiful city with green hills and orange groves. And I thought, wow, I'm in California now. In the post-war period, Americans flocked to California and many built new lives in San Bernardino. Richard and Maurice, or Mac McDonald, opened a hamburger stand in 1940 on the southwest corner of 14th and E Streets near San Bernardino High School. It did brisk business and became the world's largest restaurant chain. Never prosperous, life in San Bernardino deteriorated in the late 20th century to become California's starkest example of urban blight. Highbrow journalist Joan Didion described the county as, quote, a harsher California, unquote, without a bohemian and avant-garde class. By 2013, it ranked as the second poorest city in the nation behind Detroit. And like Detroit, San Bernardino went bust. The city continues to rest near the bottom of the quality of life indexes. Where's the worst place to raise a family or find a high-paying job? In California, San Bernardino is often high on the list. According to one poll, the city was the worst city in America for food lovers, health inspectors in San Bernardino. All but one of those who died on 2 December 2015 belonged to San Bernardino's small circle of county health inspectors. County residents enjoy safe water, uncontaminated food, safely prepared food, and dining facilities free of vermin and cockroaches, partially because public inspectors are doing their job. San Bernardino's health inspectors are drawn from all over America and the world. One health department supervisor sometimes referred to her band of inspectors as a little United Nations. They come from Colombia, Eritrea. Iran, Mexico, India, and other distant reaches of the globe. The potpourri of ethnicities, religions, and political opinions can bring disputes. No talking politics, no inter-office drama were the implicit office rules. Many of these health inspectors worked with Syed Farouk, and it is likely that none guessed that he would shoot and kill them. His co-workers valued Farouk's soft-spoken cooperative style. Some in the office kidded him about his beard, but he usually shrugged off any jokes that were made about his facial hair. Farouk began to search for a wife and turned to a Muslim lonely hearts dating service that reached for singles around the world. He described himself as coming from a, quote, 
religious but modern family, end quote, whose values were Eastern and Western. Six feet tall, he enjoyed, in his words, working on vintage and modern cars and reading about religion, and he liked to just hang out in the backyard doing target practice with his younger sister and friends. His biography caught the eye of a Pakistan-born and Saudi-raised young woman who would become his wife. The mutual attraction was immediate. A smitten Tafshin Malik replied, and they began an electronic courtship with flurries of emails. They shared a common faith and a set of values that were anchored on the core values of Islam, but few understood the depth of their radicalism and their support for Islamic militancy. In retrospect, the FBI concluded that Farouk and Malik separately radicalized on the internet as early as 2011. They were independently drawn to the sermons and other material posted online by Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Early in their online liaison, they discussed martyrdom operations, and they shared contempt for the United States of America. Malik was born in the small southern Pakistani town, some 275 miles from Islamabad. Malik moved to Saudi Arabia as a child after her father found work as an engineer there. She excelled in school. Her brother recalled, quote, she was always at the top of her class, unquote. At university in Pakistan, she started dressing more conservatively, wearing a scarf that covered nearly all of her face, and she became more fervent in her Muslim faith, according to those who knew her in Pakistan. Malik was not identified as a threat, despite being interviewed at the U.S. Embassy in Pakistan and vetted by different government agencies. They checked her name and her picture against a terror watch list and ran her fingerprints against two databases. After they were married, they moved into the middle-class area of Redlands, which is a cozy, affordable bedroom community in the Inland Empire. The newlyweds lived with Farouk's mother. At home, Malik tended to their new baby when Farouk was in the garage. He was tinkering with his car. But at some point, husband and wife began making plans beyond running the household. Relatives knew they kept firearms locked up in the house, but nothing in the newlyweds' lifestyle portended the crime that they would commit in December 2015. Best Friends Jihad is becoming as American as apple pie and as British as afternoon tea. Anwar al-Awlaki. Though Farouk was solitary, he had a best friend whom he converted to Islam. Farouk and Enrique Marquez shared many interests common to American teenage boys, such as cars, sports, and girls. But they also confided in each other the desire to strike out in America, the America they grew to loathe. The lanky and shy Marquez felt emotionally empty and turned to Islam to fear a spiritual void. At 16, he became a Muslim, and he was soon radicalized. He channeled his anger towards the enemies of his newly embraced religion, Islam. With Farouk, he watched morbid footage of al-Qaeda killings. Both 
drew inspiration from the sermons of firebrand Anwar al-Awlaki and the Al-Qaeda magazine Inspire. Marquez checked identification at a local bar and he cleaned up after clothing. He occasionally drank with the patrons. After a few drinks, he slipped into self-pity, lamenting his obesity, lack of career direction, and inability to make friends. Young women showed no interest in him, and the bar's owner described him as goofy. When inebriated, he confided to regulars that he knew Muslim sleeper cells were in town ready to burst out in slaughter sprees. He hinted at an upcoming grandiose attack, but patrons sniffed away his taunts as bravado. One patron said, We took it as a joke. When you look at this kid and talk to him, nobody would take him seriously about that. That patron would be proven wrong. In August 2011, Farouk divulged to Marquez his intent to join Al-Qaeda in Yemen. Sometimes after that, they scouted local places to attack, such as the Riverside City College and the 91 Freeway using guns and explosives. Marquez purchased two of the assault weapons that were used in the San Bernardino Massacre. They mulled over attacking Riverside Community College Main Library or cafeteria. They did this because both knew the campus layout. They had taken courses there. They would lob pipe bombs into rooms and randomly spray fire. Alternatively, they would toss explosives from an overpass onto cars traveling on Route 91. After disabling several of the cars, the two would spring from their overpass and point-blank blast rounds at stunned motorists. They would then shoot the first responders. Police were priority targets. Well, nothing came of these plots, and neighbors were unaware of any of their plans to harm people. Nonetheless, the basic scheme of corralling and slaughtering a large crowd of San Bernardino residents framed the December 2015 attack. This spasm of murder would be a husband and wife operation, and it would happen at the annual Christmas party amid candy canes, eggnog, pictures with Santa Claus, and warm holiday fun. Planning. Varmint rifles and pipe bombs. Quote, a small caliber rifle, usually 5.56 millimeter caliber, used to hunt small game. Unquote. The definition of a varmint rifle. Husband and wife prepared their attack well in advance. There is no known record of the precise moment the pair determined to commit mass murder. While Farouk was distantly courting Malik, they exchanged texts about mar martyrdom operations. But as the annual office party approached, husband and wife prepared a detailed scheme that included assault weapons, sidearms, explosives. They selected a gathering of his co-workers at the Christmas party. Farouk knew the layout of the facility. He had trained there before, and he may have undergone active shooter training there the year before. Many of his colleagues did. He knew the agenda for the day's activities and when and where people would be giving presentations. He sketched out the layout ahead of time. 
Marquez bought them the weapons they needed. The purchase was illegal because he bought them for a third party, which made it a straw purchase. Farouk selected rifles that would use the 223 round. Through Marquez, he obtained one for himself and one for his wife. The 223 round can pierce through standard protective vests worn by police officers. He chose variants of the AR-15, a very controversial weapon. Gun control activists refer to these weapons as assault rifles, while others dispute the terms. Whatever they are called, few would question the devastating effects that the 223 or 5.56mm round has on the human body. As the holiday party approached, the couple began practicing at local ranges. They also started mapping out the planned route of attack. Farouk sketched out the venue's conference room, tables, chairs, and podiums, as well as the entrances and exits. His marginalia included terms like cover fire and suppressive fire. Finally, they dropped off their daughter with Farouk's mother. Now. They were ready to go to the party and kill. Where is Said? Perched near a sizzler in an IHOP restaurant, the party venue was the Inland Regional Center. It is a large compound of three buildings on Waterman Avenue in an area with some industrial gentrification. On Wednesday, December 2nd, 2015, the county's Division of Environmental Health Services held a training session followed by a holiday party. Attendees placed their potluck offerings on a red tablecloth. A large Christmas tree adorned with decorations stood in a corner, and holiday ornaments hung from the walls and the ceiling. But not all the inspectors wanted to attend the party. Some assumed that it would be a repeat of the often tedious training sessions, forced conversations, and tiresome luncheons. Others were skeptical of a working party period and did not want to listen to lectures. Inspector Michelle Saltis considered calling in sick that day. Middle-aged Shannon Johnson confided to Denise Peraza that the large clock on the wall might be broken because time was moving so slowly. At about 8.48, Farouk arrived and sat near Saltis, who recalled, quote, The whole time he was kind of quiet. He was looking at his cell phone. And then the next thing you knew, we saw him standing up and walk away. Patrick Bakari approached Farouk, whom he considered to be a friend, and snickered, Ready to be bored? This was a standing joke about the training part of the annual working party. I'm ready, Farouk responded. Farouk was particularly taciturn that day, speaking only when colleagues greeted him. Colleagues noticed Farouk glancing at his phone before he departed, but nobody was concerned. He placed a bag on a chair and left abruptly at 10.37. Later in the afternoon, police would find a bomb in the bag. Farouk returned to the training center driving a rental black Ford Expedition with Utah plates. He was accompanied by his wife, both of whom were carrying weapons. They stopped and approached the 60-year-old and father of three, Isaac Amanios, who was sitting and enjoying the break. 
one or both fired, hitting him in the chest and the shoulder. The chest bullet tumbled through his muscles and a lung killing him. He had no idea what happened. Amanios was the first to die that day. His corpse lay slumped over as though he were sleeping, taking a nap. Inside the center, several people noticed soft staccato popping sounds outside. Fireworks? A car backfire? One person thought somebody had fallen from the roof, but a few recognized the distinct crackly sound as gunfire. Suddenly, a door swung open and a masked figure wielding an automatic rifle and clad in all black entered. It was Farouk who turned to face co-workers who were standing next to a buffet table, filling their plates with bagels and pastries. A few were posing for staff pictures. All were taken entirely by surprise, and several turned to stare at the oddly dressed person, dressed in black, standing with a rifle, who appeared to be entirely out of place for a Christmas party. In a moment, another black-clad, weapon-wielding person, this one much shorter, stood beside him. Husband and wife bore down on the party, and began to spray fire. Multiple calls described rifle-toting masked intruders firing blindly. When a dispatcher asked a caller how many shots were fired, the answer was, Oh my God, a million. Soon, another caller exclaimed, We have an active shooter here. There's somebody dressed in black, and they have, they have a gun. Oh my God. The calls continued. As the chaos unfolded, a round hit a fire sprinkling pipe, forcing water to dart from the ceiling. The water and smoke filled the room, making it difficult for people to see. The floor became slippery, but the shooters ambled calmly between tables, selecting their targets and killing them. When someone moved or made a sound, the shooter sometimes fired one or more multiple shots at them. One of the party organizers, Diane Almond, recalled metaphorically that bullet casings were falling around her like snow. Kevin Ortiz took several shots. Sure he was dying. Ortiz called his new wife, Diana, whom he married two weeks earlier, and he professed his love to her. He promised her he would survive and return to her arms soon. He fulfilled that promise despite taking five rounds.
Some partygoers were hit by indirect fire. A bullet ripped through a wall and hit a woman, and another was shot as she tried to escape through a glass door near the shooter's entrance. Daniel Kaufman, attending to the center's coffee cart, acted immediately, screaming, Get out! Go! Get out! Now! Hurry! He opened an exterior door, grabbed people, and thrust them out to safety, saving lives, but he could not save his own. Here you see his partner weeping at the news of his death. Heavenly Father, watch over my family. Watch over us. Under the din of gunfire, Michelle Saltis froze for a moment. The young woman, whose gut instinct told her to call in sick that day, now bore witness to slaughter. An injured Saltus collapsed to the floor and pretended she was dead. Farouk came by and kicked her leg. And then he fired again. Still alive, she prayed to God, saying that she was ready to come to him if it were time, but that she wanted to live. It was not her time to die, and she lived. Patrick Bakari, who had joked with Farouk earlier in the day, was in the men's room when he heard soft explosions. Scanning his surroundings, he spotted the effects of bullets shattering the walls. What was happening? Did somebody booby-trap the towel dispenser? A nasty prank, perhaps. Bakari was reaching for a towel when a bullet ripped through the dispenser and sprayed shrapnel across the room. An Air Force veteran, Bakari dropped to the ground and took cover. There were three exits in the conference room, but to dash to one of them would be to expose somebody to direct fire. Then, drawing from Bakari's military training, he shouted to others in the men's room to get down, secure themselves, take cover. Vietnamese-American Tin Nguyen was shot and killed. A few days before the party, the 31-year-old health inspector bought a wedding dress. She radiated her uncontained joy at home and in the office at becoming a married woman. Now, she lay dead in the center, on the killing floor. Later in the evening, families and friends would eulogize her in the church in which she was to be married. Sierra Claiborne died that day, too. At 27, Years old, she was one of the youngest fatalities. The death count mounted. Robert Christian Adams took bullets in the upper base of his neck. The bullet deformed into metallic fragments, which ripped through his lower right lung and right kidney, killing him. He was also shot in the left thigh. Statistician Larry Bowman was shot five times and died. Eight of their bodies would be found in the conference room, some no more than 50 feet from where Bowman lay. Co-workers Ennis Kondoker was walking in the hall when she was hit. She never saw the shooters. She attended the same mosque as Farouk and knew him. Both were practicing Muslims, but that did not save her. Now shot, she crawled to the bathroom, aided by a co-worker, who shouted, There's a shooter! Bleeding from several wounds, Kondoker crouched next to Sally Cardinale, 
who thought of her husband who lost his previous wife. Sally believed that he wouldn't be able to lose another wife and survive emotionally. Her thoughts were interrupted by screams and prayers in Spanish and English, pleading that God intervened with mercy and help the trapped and injured. In the bathroom, a cleaning woman began screaming in Spanish. Cardinale snapped very quickly, Shut up, you're going to draw fire here. The gunfire stopped. Everyone who had been sitting at the table minutes earlier, sipping coffee or nibbling on finger food, had been killed or seriously wounded. Julie Swanpez and Hal Hauser were standing for a group photo at a Christmas tree. Moments before the torrent of rifle fire began, Hauser heard what he thought was a nail gun outside. In fact, he heard the shots that killed Isaac Amanios, Swanpez, who was handed a prestigious award minutes earlier, now lay writhing in agony, having been hit with gunfire. She texted her family, I love you guys. She clutched a cell phone but became confused when it didn't work. It was not hers. It belonged to one of her two co-workers who lay dead next to her. Her friends and co-workers were dying around her, but she lived. The last full measure of devotion. Denise Peraza was grading papers for a class she was teaching. Then she explained, the guys opened fire for 30 seconds, then paused to reload and began firing again. Several rounds found their mark on her torso. She had been shot in the back and crawled under the table for cover. She called her mother, Lisa, quote, Mommy, I've been shot. She called her sister to say, quote, I just want to tell you that I love you, unquote. Then she hung up. But Peraza was not alone. Shannon Johnson, a Georgia farm boy, grabbed and clutched her and assured her, I got you. Peraza later described how Johnson kept his left arm wrapped around me, holding me as close as possible next to him, behind that chair, unquote. Peraza continued, quote, I believe that I am still alive here today because of this amazing man, this amazing selfless man who always brought a smile to everyone's face in the office with his lively stories about his hometown back in Georgia, my friend, my hero, unquote. But others did die, and the body count began to mount. Benetta Betbatal did not survive multiple shots that riddled her body. The Iranian who came to America at age 18 to escape Islamic extremism died from a gunshot wound to her abdomen fired by a radical Muslim. She had also been hit in the legs and in the chest. Also shot and killed was Nicholas Thalassinos a Messianic Jew who hoped to visit Israel the following year to connect with the birthplace of Christianity. He had a low-level dust-up with Farouk over the Middle East. That was a long time ago. In fact, fellow inspector Shannon Johnson brokered the dispute by assuring Farouk that he was valued and well-liked in the office, which he was. Once, in the parking lot, this sturdily built Georgia farm boy embraced Farouk, 
who appeared distraught by the political dispute he was having with Solosinos. Wiping his tears, Farouk thanked Johnson for comforting him. On December 2, 2015, either Farouk or his wife would calmly approach both Solosinos and Johnson and shoot them dead. Outside of Building 3, people heard screams and gunfire. From her office in a building next to the center, Interim Director of the Lighthouse for the Blind, Sandra Sandy Wood, heard 25 to 30 bursts of automatic gunfire. The Lighthouse for the Blind is located directly across the street, affording her and her staff a direct view of a curved ribbon of survivors who began pouring out of the center. Quote, you could tell the person stopped and reloaded and started again, unquote. Wood moved from the windows and called 9-11, explaining that there were several dozen people next door and that she feared for their lives. Immediately, she placed the lighthouse on lockdown. Later, she would reflect, quote, this guy, Farouk, was a health inspector. He inspected schools like ours. Jay Holman, a driver for one of the lighthouse vans, said he was sure that Malik left the building. He saw her. Soon, a strip of men and women poured from the center's rear exit. They were running, stumbling, hobbling, crawling in different directions. Two desperately sought refuge, and Sandy and her assistant Jay opened the door and took them in. Local journalists got word of the shooting. NBC journalist Alex Vasquez pulled into the center at about 11 o'clock. Quote, people were running. People had been shot in the back, arms, and chest. I saw a woman who was badly injured. She was on the ground struggling. I saw her take her last breath, unquote. Some people were slung into the backs of pickups and shuttle down the streets. The pickup truck returned to the center to ferry some more of the injured to safety. 1059. Police moved to the sound of fire. Within seconds of receiving calls from the center, law enforcement personnel deployed units to the site of the shooting. First responders from all over the Inland Empire knew within minutes of the shooting that there was a mass killing underway at the center. But the whole picture was very cloudy. Were there two or three shooters? Were they still in the center? And if not, where were they now? Who were the shooters? Police officers arrived on the scene and began searching for suspects and clearing victims out of the building. Police Department Lieutenant Mike Madden was on a lunch break one mile from the killing scene. Less than five minutes after the shooting began, the assailants had fled and the first responders soon arrived. The center's doors flung open. Standing before the panicked and huddled survivors were law enforcement officers. They were armed, calm, and prepare to pursue them. One officer roared, anyone who can move, leave immediately and find cover behind the vehicles. Madden entered and was followed by other officers holding side at ready. Hundreds of center employees 
spilled from the building into the sunlight, knowing that they were now safe. Others remained in hiding, unaware that the killing was over. All law enforcement officers in the building had one priority, to locate and capture or kill the assailants. San Bernardino police officer Sean Sandoval was part of the first team to enter the center. He was ordered to stop the shooters. This required bypassing some of the injured, some of whom were begging for help. He remembered very painfully, I made eye contact, the looks on the victims you can't describe, the need for help as they looked at you when you entered the room, the screams and the cries. But we pushed on, unquote. Sandoval could not shake the knowledge that, in his words, some were alive when you entered, and when you came back, they were no longer living, unquote. The injured pled for aid, but Sandoval and others had to walk around them. Now convinced that the killers were gone, the first responders turned to the wounded, some of whom were still terrorized. Madden needed to win their confidence quickly. He repeated Come to us, come to us, come to us. And after a pause, they did. A few moved forward, and then dozens followed quickly. Prohibition and other officers carried out the wounded. It was hard work. The clothing on the victims' bodies were wet from water soaking from that pierced sprinkler, making them very slippery. Inside the conference room, the mist made it very difficult for medics to use triage tactics on the injured. So the medics used tape and wrote each person's status on the tape. Initially, the wounded were carried to a spot right outside of the building. But that was judged too close to an active shooter situation. It was simply too dangerous at the crime scene. They were carried, soaking wet and trembling, across the street to a golf course. Survivors were shepherded to the triage treatment area, where medics tended to their wounds, and where they would recover and try to make sense of what had just happened. People were moaning and crying, and others were circulating among the injured, offering help. Others simply rested in stunned silence and disbelief and others strolled to the first responders, requesting assistance. Police investigators asked them to recount the details of the attack. The rescued and the rescuers grappled to try to understand what had just happened. Who did the shooting? Who was shot? And why did this whole thing happen? Several victims speculated that Farouk was one of the shooters. They said that the taller shooter had the same height and gait. Quickly, investigators verified that Farouk had rented a black SUV. Officers began looking for the car. One person thought he knew one of the killers. Chief Jared Burgoon said, quote, he gave us the name Saeed Farouk. When Farouk's name came up as a suspect, his office mates initially sniffed it away. Nah, it's not him. He's quiet. He doesn't make any trouble. But Tafshin Malik left no doubt that she was one of the killers. Soon after her rifle's barrel cooled, Malik used Facebook to pledge her loyalty to ISIS and to its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. 
after the party. Before the blood was washed from the floors of the building, ISIS propaganda tweeted their glee over, in their words, their blessed attacks that killed one-third of San Bernardino's county's health inspectors. An ISIS leader pleaded, quote, May Allah accept our brother and sister who were martyred after carrying out an operation against crusaders in the USA. The following month's edition of Inspire magazine would praise them for leaving a comfortable lifestyle and only child and choosing instead martyrdom. It showed a montage of pictures of mutilated corpses with a background narration explaining, quote, We did this for Allah. The killings filled us with joy. ISIS self-congratulations filtered out for days, but in San Bernardino on 2 December, there was panic, despair, and pleas for information. Who was alive and who was dead? Who was shot? Were they in the hospital or in the morgue? Where were they? Medical professionals call the first 60 minutes following a severe wound the golden hour. In San Bernardino, it took 57 minutes to evacuate 22 wounded survivors, some of whom were wounded critically, to a local hospital. The golf course across the street was now the new command post. The first fairway was used as a helipad transporting the most critically injured to area hospitals. Victims and witnesses were escorted on foot, and the severely injured were ferried in golf carts. Conditions on the golf course were very spartan for the still-shaken survivors. There were no bathrooms, there was very little shade, and the debriefing took hours. Further, cell phone batteries were dead or dying, which made communications challenging. The priority was to save the wounded. Medics marked the ground with chalk, indicating the severity of the wound. Immediate, delayed, minor, and deceased. Residents and businesses offered services and provided food, water, and supplies. Inside the centers, members of the Counseling Team International offered psychological counseling. The counselors often also helped pen death notifications to the families of the dead. San Bernardino school board members partnered with teachers to protect the children and to inform the parents of the situation. Frank, Adam, Roger, Ocean, Ocean King, Farouk. The chase begins. While friends and loved ones frantically combed hospitals and clinics for information, law enforcement officials scoured the streets for a black rental explorer with Utah plates. The assailants kept geographically close to San Bernardino and Redlands in what appeared to be an aimless circling with intermittent stops. Then detectives spotted Farouk and Malik driving towards Redlands and followed them. A Redlands Police Department squad signaled to Farouk to pull over, but he did not come to a full stop. Nick Coho, a narcotics officer with the San Bernardino Police Department, exited his car and began to close in with Farouk. He went prone at 70 yards from Farouk's SUV. Then the shooting started. 
more than 175 law enforcement officers from various local, county, state, and federal agencies had arrived by the time of the exchange. Altogether, 24 officers fired at least 440 rounds at the vehicle, riddled with bullets and collapsed on the ground. Farouk lay lifeless. But his wife began to fire blindly in short bursts from the SUV's window. Police at the scene fired every gun in their arsenal, including a Mini-14 and a shotgun and a handgun. Listen to this. Tafshin Malik, that female suspect, firing out the back at police. And then the male suspect, who was the driver, got out and fired at officers from the street as well. All in all, firing 76 rounds. The shootout was a howling performance for the nearby neighbors who watched the spectacular in puzzled terror. In the afternoon of the shooting, county leaders shut down all non-essential public services, including schools. For several hours after the shooting, officials shuttered many stores and public places and blocked off the streets. Residents had never gone through anything like this before, and they didn't really understand what was happening. A journalist evoked the image of a police state, and others spoke of desolation. Soon after the shooting, armored police vehicles rolled throughout downtown streets some of which were completely barren of pedestrians. One person commented, quote, it's like a ghost town right now, unquote. The morning after, from around the world, men and women asked why this happened. Discussing religiously driven attacks in America, President Obama and Hillary Clinton avoided using radical Islam or jihad Hillary Clinton warned that coupling terrorism with the words Muslim or Islam risked alienated Muslims. Quote, it helps to create this clash of civilizations, unquote. Months earlier, the Islamic State in Iraq and the Sham, ISIS, claimed credit for attacks in Paris that killed 130 people. President Obama underscored how few Muslims approved of these killings and cautioned Americans not to assume that many Muslims approved of any slaughter. John Podesta, the president's campaign manager, wrote, Better if a guy named Saeed Farouk was named Christopher Hayes, unquote, who some alush executive director of the Council on American-Islamic Relations for Los Angeles, opined, quote, the crime was not committed by a Muslim. It was committed by a criminal, by someone who has no value for life. No one should feel Farouk represents us. But several Republicans charged Obama and Clinton with denying reality. Presidential candidate Trump opined, look, we are having tremendous problem with radical Islamic terrorism. And we have a president who won't even issue the term. He won't talk about it, unquote. Governor Chris Christie asked, how can this country fight its enemies if the president won't say who they are, unquote. President's friend Enrique Marquez panicked. He 
knew that he was implicated in this event because he bought the assailants the weapons they used in the crime. After hours of heavy drinking, Marquez stumbled into a hospital psychiatric ward, and he offered details on his plans with Farouk in 2011 and 2012 to attack Riverside City College and commuter traffic on Route 91. He admitted to making false statements to buy weapons for his friends. Why did Farouk ask him to buy the weapons? Well, because a South Asian Muslim purchase of assault weapons would concern the FBI. However, a Latino would not draw suspicion. Marquez also bought smokeless powder. He knew he was facing a long prison term, and he would receive one. The brave first responders were hailed as heroes, though these heroes cast themselves as men and women who were simply doing their jobs. Here is one example. Just listen. David, we're also learning how quickly that rampage unfolded. You mentioned police were there within four minutes, but in that time span, that couple managed to get in, fire off dozens of rounds and flee before police even got there. The horror quickly overtaking the holiday luncheon as Farouk and his wife came into the conference room at 11 a.m. wearing tactical vests and bearing rifles. Peter now a shot fired Inland Regional Center, 1365 South Waterman. We believe the suspects, when they entered, fired somewhere between 65 and 75 rounds. They sprayed the room with bullets. Within four minutes, a massive law enforcement response. We have several down in the conference room. Discovering an explosive device, apparently intended to be triggered by remote control. We need to slow this thing down. I need you to advise all of the units to move with caution. We did locate the one uh, pipe bomb. There was actually three pipe bombs combined into one that had a remote control car type remote control device. This dramatic video shared with local radio station KPCC shows police trying to keep people calm. In February the following year, President Donald Trump awarded the White House Medal of Valor to six San Bernardino County law enforcement employees for their bravery on December 2, 2015. The president explained, quote, they all share one thing in common. When faced with danger, they each put the lives of others before their own. There were some of the very brave people I'm standing with. Residents struggled to come to terms with the violence. County employees began returning to work under tighter security several days after the attack. The acute fear of a repeat attack by ISIS subsided, though a lingering and ambient sense of anxiety continued. Steve Caprio took a moment to describe his community's new reality. I want to get some gas today, and I'm looking at these guys. Huh? Do you have a weapon? Well, they're looking back at me. Do you have a weapon? Unquote. Many of those who witnessed the killing never completely walked away from the killing floor. They suffer what the Greek historian Homer called the soldier's heart, which was later called shell shock. In the late 1970s, it was given the name post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Sally Cardinale's daydreams often become nightmares, which take her back to the IRC. At unpredictable times, words or visuals 
or songs take her back to Waterman Avenue that day, where she sees bodies lying in front of her. She sees a woman lying on the ground, her arms shaking up in the air in complete shock, until the next time Sally had looked back and the woman's body had been covered. Others cannot forget and will not let themselves forget the courage of the men and women who risked their lives to save others. Jay Holman of the Lighthouse for the Blind recalls the discipline and bravery of the probation officers who entered the building, hands on shoulders, not knowing what they would meet. Quote, I saw this officer go right in there, man. It was, it was bravery, just bravery. When they snake through, oh, man, it was so impressive, unquote. But all this does not explain why the couple killed. There are many explanations for the killing. Here are seven. Why did they kill? Explanation one. Retaliation against the United States for its foreign policy. Some Muslim leaders cite Washington's support for unpopular regimes and autocratic leaders as a driver for homicidal hatred of the United States throughout the Muslim world. This view is shared by left-of-center journalists and professors who underscore what they claim to be anti-Muslim and pro-Israel policy. The Council on American-Islamic Relations care, who some Ilush made the argument in response to the San Bernardino shooting. Professor Barry Levin speculated that the pair were driven by workplace-related motives and by ideology. The explanation of anti-Americanism holds that attacks on Arabs and Muslim countries generate a desire for revenge. Tafshin Malik marinated in anti-Americanism as a student in Pakistan. Radical Muslims are also angry at perceived U.S. support for undemocratic governments in the Middle East. Evidence they offer include weapon sales and training programs to the Saudi Arabian National Guard, as well as to the Egyptian government. Farouk repeatedly disparaged American support for Israel. A classmate and colleague who knew Farouk fairly well had this to say about him. A lot of people think he was very quiet. I didn't get that impression of him. So this is new, because we've heard he was very quiet. Mm -mm. Really? Yeah. He was very confident when he, when he talked. Uh, there was times when we walked out of work uh, in the morning, and I couldn't get him to stop talking. They later worked together, and he says he watched him change over time. He liked to talk about cars a lot. Uh, Fixing things, building things. He liked to talk about uh, religion a lot. Explanation two, workplace harassment and Islamophobia. This explanation argues that persistent harassment of Muslims drives pent-up anger to explode in unpredictable volcanic violence. Muslim advocacy groups such as CARE and left-oriented activist organizations such as the Southern Poverty Law Center, the SPLC, make this claim often. University of Michigan 
history professor, Juan Cole explained that the San Bernardino sh- uh, killings were people going postal over stressors at work. The argument cites studies that show many Muslims have been victimized by religious discrimination in their daily lives and that they feel very devalued. Explanation three, driven by a misunderstanding of true Islam. Anais Kondaker, a victim of the assailants and fellow Muslim, was convinced that the attack was not connected to Islam, and many of her co-religionists agree. The British think tank, Quilliam, examined key text used by ISIS cadre and determined that the group proffered a twist interpretation of Islamic teachings. Quilliam concluded that Isaac's clerics cherry-picked Quranic texts and selected the most aggressive verses as the theoretical and legal framework for violence. A United Nations study found that Isis Western recruits have only a rudimentary understanding of Islam. Many did not know how to pay, pray properly. This view holds that Farouk and Malik did not understand authentic Islam. Instead, they were caught in the grip of a twisted, violent interpretation of the religion. Explanation four, mental illness. Immediately after the killing, some observers diagnosed the motives as mental illness or mental instability. The term mental illness is often used synonymously with psychosis, which is the failure to distinguish fantasy from reality and to know right from wrong. The threshold for the insanity defense is very high. In most states, and as practiced in the the federal government, counsel needs to prove that the defendant was controlled by an irresistible impulse and that the assailant would have committed the crime even if a policeman was standing at his elbow. In the United States, the insanity defense is used in only 1% to 3% of all court cases. Only 26% of those cases are successful. Explanation 5. Evil Nature and Psychopathy One explanation for the attack is rooted in human nature. It argues that Sayyid and Malik had evil natures that were revealed at the Christmas party. The closest clinical term to define evil is that used by mental health care professionals. It is psychopathy. This condition is really a constellation of symptoms, which includes callousness, showing a lack of empathy, and things like that. They are not psychotic but they lack any feelings of guilt. They're simply empty of deep emotion or shame. They are often irresponsible, and many are habitual liars. Many live a parasitic lifestyle. This condition is rare, maybe 1% or 2% in the population. And partnerships of psychopaths is very, very rare. When brought to trial, these very rare cases become immediately infamous. Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb tried to commit a perfect murder, but they were caught and sentenced to life plus 99 years. Ian Brady and Myra Hinley were the Moore killers. They killed five children in the 1960s for sadistic pleasure. Fred and Rose West earned the moniker 
of Britain's most prolific serial killers. Charles Manson and his core followers were highly, highly psychopathic. Explanation 6, a gun culture and the availability of assault weapons. The abundant supply of assault weapons does not explain the motive for the attack. However, gun control advocates point out that the availability of the assault weapons with high-capacity magazines helps to explain the carnage. Hillary Clinton said this, quote, You here in this beautiful city know the horrors, the losses associated with gun violence. They're just unimaginable, unquote. President Obama called on Congress to close a gun control purchase loophole. He noted that Marquez made an illegal purchase of the weapons. Explanation 7. Islamic Mandates Both assailants were committed Muslims who trained for years to learn their faith. As an adolescent, Farouk embraced radical Islam with an evangelical passion. Tafshin Malik attended daily sessions at the Al-Huda Seminary for Girls, very fundamentalist. A family in Pakistan explained that Malik became deeply religious during college and began posting Islamic extremist messages on Facebook after arriving in the United States. These are my personal views. They do not represent the official views of anybody or any agency in the United States government. Why did they kill their co-workers? Now, did they kill their co-workers in retaliation for United States foreign policy? Well, both assailants certainly had arguments with American foreign policy. Farouk openly expressed his loathing for Israel and his anger at the United States for supporting it. But this does not explain why both would kill California health inspectors. Farouk's co-workers had absolutely no influence on American diplomacy or war-making decisions. Anger at American diplomacy would be more appropriately directed at the military-industrial symbols, as happened in the 1960s. Workplace harassment? If there had been repeated serious harassment against Farouk, it would have been discovered in the post-attack investigation. Journalists and investigators probed to understand the workplace social climate among the health inspectors. The only office tension unearthed by exhaustive investigations was the previously discussed dust-up between Farouk and that pro-Israel Christian over Israel. But this exchange was immediately limited to a few barbs. There's no evidence that his wife was ever harassed for being a Muslim. Let me stress this. Farouk's co-workers held a baby shower for Malik. Malik who would go and kill and shoot some of them at the Christmas party. They bought her gifts. They bought her presents. This is how a co-worker described his working relationships. How religious was he? Barry. He had a good work relationship with everyone. With the people he shot? Yeah. And that's what's puzzling. How, why? 
I was trying to call him as I called every single person that possibly could have been in that building to find out if they were okay. And I'm over here calling this guy to find out if he's okay and he's the shooter, you know. Did they misunderstand Islam? Husband and wife anchored their lives on the practice and study of Islam. Farouk memorized extensive passages of the Quran and was a recognized leader in Muslim circles in San Bernardino. The Islam he studied in local mosques was conventional Sunni Islam, taught in myriad mosques around the world. In addition, he listened to the sermons of Anwar al-Awlaki, who was an advocate for violence. Al-Awlaki promote a weaponized Islam, that is true. But nonetheless, it is Islam. Farouk's wife studied years after years fundamental Islam in Pakistan and later in Saudi Arabia, as well as in her new home in the United States. They pledged their allegiance to ISIS because they saw it as a credible and dynamic force of Islam. Their status as, mar as martyrs was more important than their roles as parents. They voluntarily orphaned their daughter in the name of Islam. Were they mad? As for Farouk and Malik, I have no evidence that either was at all mentally ill. To the best of my knowledge, nobody who interacted with Farouk or Malik speculated that either suffered from delusions or paranoia. There is no record that they had auditory or visual hallucinations. There are no records to indicate antisocial or odd behavior, and neither is there a known record of hospitalization for mental illness or a psychotic break. Finally, no investigation revealed any psychological disturbances in either of the killers. Farouk had a calm and steady persona. There were no reported emotional outbursts that required intervention from a supervisor. His wife was a devout, quiet, and traditional woman. Now, this is not the profile of many mass murders, some of whom were diagnosed as mentally ill, deeply troubled emotionally, or psychopathic. Did they have a dark and warped personality? There is no evidence that either Farouk or Malik suffered from antisocial personality disorder, sometimes called psychopathy. His co-workers did not suspect Farouk of stealing things or bullying people or harassing people or trying to shake down owners of local restaurants. Psychopaths generally need to assert their power over others and are callous to the injuries they cause. As an inspector, Farouk could intimidate local vendors. This was certainly the case with Dennis Rader, shown here. But there are no records of this in the case of uh, Farouk. No witness has said that he tortured animals or set fires or threatened to harm people. Psychopaths are propelled by the need to dominate others, and he simply didn't have this. Now, a common refrain from gun control activists is that the ready availability of semi-automatic firearms and high-capacity magazines added to the carnage there. That may be the case. However, in Europe, in which there is far stricter gun control, Islamists have used large trucks to murder people, as well as automatic weapons, 
they gain access to assault weapons despite strict civilian laws against possession. Jihadis have used bombs in European states. In any case, gun possession does not explain why they killed. So, why did they kill? They killed because they were inspired to do so by Islamic mandates. They were not the first to do so in the United States, and they will not be the last. Also, you should know that not everybody in the national security sniffed away the threat of Islamic terrorism. Department of Homeland Security senior intelligence analyst Philip Haney warned of the infiltration of radical Muslims into the United States, and he became a whistleblower when the government, in his judgment, refused to investigate radical immigrants, such as Tafshin Malik. And his efforts are another story, and a very important one. The San Bernardino massacre is also a story of two brothers, which is sometimes lost in the wake of the slaughter on that day. Syed Rizwan Farouk was a committed radical who killed in the name of his god. However, his brother, Syed Rahil Farouk, enlisted in the Navy and was twice decorated for his service. He served America. Both were raised in the same home with the same parents. They attended the same mosque, high school. Both were Muslims, but they went in very different directions. Rahil chased girls, enjoyed alcohol, and enjoyed the service. His brother withdrew from society and closeted himself with his wife and the Quran to plan a grandiose homicide-suicide gesture that murdered his co-workers and orphaned his daughter. Somebody both, somebody who knew them both in high school remarked, Rahil was just a normal guy. No one talked to Rizwan. And what lessons can we draw from the killing floor, that mass murder in San Bernardino? You decide. Thank you from Kensington Security Consulting, where we bring education to national security. Thank you for listening to this lesson in Intelligence and Society. We invite educators to use these lessons in their courses if they would like. This was brought to you by Kensington Security Consulting, where we bring education to national security.